This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the Coast and Country download from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country with me, Helen Mark. If you can picture John Constable's renowned painting of Salisbury Cathedral, the one where you look across the vast water meadows with the big tumbling skies and the green grassland and that magnificent tall, pale limestone spire, that's exactly where you find me today. These are the Harnham water meadows. Think of like a green lung, maybe even a green sponge that runs to the south of Salisbury City. This programme is about the management of water from centuries ago. Taking in this wonderful landscape on the edge of Salisbury is Jan Fitzjohn, and you're a trustee with the Harnham Water Meadows Trust, Jan. It's the confluence of rivers, these great river systems and the chalk streams. So just describe where the water flows round these meadows. Well, the River Wiley joins the River Nadder somewhere between Wilton and here, which is about three miles away. And we're very fortunate with the Harnham Water Meadows because the Nadder then divides and it makes us an island. The River Nadder joins the River Avon on the Salisbury side, very near to the Cathedral Close, half of it. And the other half goes round the top side of the Harnham Water Meadows and joins the River Avon further down in the city. The great watercourses that surround this area and are part of this city (coughs) water meadows landscape? Yes, we're very fortunate because there are these two major rivers and also two other rivers come into the Salisbury area as well. So it's a very watery city. And the Harnham Water Meadows, a lovely green space, you're looking at 84 acres of meadow. And it's the idea of this watery landscape that these rivers are part of the great chalk streams that Wiltshire and Hampshire are so famous for. And Tim Tatton-Brown, who is an archaeologist and an historian, has joined us, Jan. Water meadows, a very clever way of using water for agriculture, dating back to when, Tim? Here they took off in the 17th century, but really dating back to the end of the Middle Ages. And the really important thing was that all around us here on the higher ground is Salisbury Plain, you know, famous for chalk downlands, covered in sheep. Salisbury was the seventh largest, richest city in England from nothing because of wool and the sheep. That was fine in the Middle Ages, but what did you do in the winter? when there was no grazing effectively on the downs. It was all frozen, the grass didn't grow. And what happens here in the water meadows, which were just the floodplain, was that if you irrigate them with water, which comes out of the ground at plus four degrees, so it's well above freezing, and it's full of nutrients, and pour it all over here, is the grass will then grow very, very early on, the famous early bite. From February, there's good grass growing here. And so you can then stock it with huge numbers of sheep, very, very densely, far more densely than on the plain, because it's such, as you can see now, rich, rich grass. So you can get hundreds and hundreds of sheep. 
But how did they do it? What did they do? So what they had to do, and this is science, because this is, you know, when science really takes over from the 17th century, the beginning of the Rosat in all of that, this is the agriculture side, is they basically had a very large number of men, so it's very expensive to do, and they created ridges all over the floodplain, and you can see them here. The rise and fall still, even in the long grass, I can still see that. Can we get a sense of those ditches and ridges, could we, Tim? Yeah. Now, we're walking out across the grass. It's very lush, isn't it? Here's one of the, by the way, is one of the channels you see down this ridge. So you push back the grass. But, oh, yes, the, my foot just slips down into That's right. a and very narrow ridge. And you can see the water came along mm-hmm. over here to the yeah. end there and then ran down the sides. Leaving behind, well, moisture, obviously, but the it nutrients within... Were dropped. You see, the, the water was warm, as I say, when it could, the ground could be completely frozen in the winter. Why was it warm, though? Because it came from a spring as much as from the river, and so the, the natural water temperature underground in the chalk was plus four degrees, roughly. Such a clever system. But a very, very clever system. Jan, Tim gave us some fantastic explanation of how water was managed across this meadow. But that was back then. It all came to a halt. So does this place still have a purpose in, in modern-day water management at all? Yes, especially at the times when we've got excess water in the winter to save Salisbury from flooding. We open all the hatches and fill the water meadows with as much water as we can. And it has made a difference. This year, it significantly was appreciated that it made a difference. And all the way down the chalk streams, right through, the hatches are open, our hatches are open. Describe then what this landscape was like in the winter when there was all that water about. It was about 80%, a huge lake, just wonderful for six weeks. But it was a real problem when it started to drain off, as we know from other places which were similarly affected. But it's recovered. Look how green it is. As you look at it, you might not realise its importance. But the Trust is about trying to bring home to everybody the significance of the water meadow system, its story. Yes, that's what we're trying to do. I think the people of Salisbury don't appreciate the water meadow system. They appreciate this wonderful green patch. But we spend a lot of time promoting this, educating children, educating even university students... What the water meadows are, they're part of a bigger picture of water across Hampshire and Wiltshire. The taking of water from the the, the main confluences of the Avon and the Nadder, using it, returning it. And that water is part of the magnificent chalk streams that these counties are so famous for. That's that's right. It's Dorset as well. I mean, our neighbouring county just to south Dorset, this whole central southern England area is famous for these water meadows and, of course, famous for the fish now that's so valuable, the trout and so on, you know, in all all the great streams, not just the Avon, but the Itch in the Test, the Stour in Dorset and so on. And they all had their, their water meadows and they are absolutely essential to the economy today in in that way. Just as we stand and talk, despite the fact that we're quite close to the city and you can hear it, it it feels fresh and lively in the meadow, doesn't it? And the rustling of the the grass. There are birds which are around us all the time, but the, the swifts, the swallows, they dip down low above the grass and pick off the insects as they go. And it's not redundant land, is it? It is still farmed to, in a it's, sense and, and Rob Hawk is one of your 
graziers. The sheep are essential to this land today to manage it. If we didn't have sheep, we couldn't do it. And so sheep are essential. Rob, you're the sheep man of the water meadows, Harnham Water Meadows. What yeah. do you graze? We graze various blocks of land around the Salisbury area. There are 320 sheep here at present. They're a breed called a Romney, which are indigenous to the Romney Marsh and the mainstay of New Zealand's sheep empire. So how does the system work now in the modern day with grazing on land like this? It's slightly different. As Tim illustrated earlier, there is this early bite here, which we the, most of our other land is, is downland. Most of the grassland now in Wiltshire and in the UK as a whole is in some sort of stewardship scheme, higher level stewardship scheme. And there are various restrictions which now mean that the land possibly can't be managed exactly or grazed exactly as it would have been hundreds of years ago, mm-hmm. as it's deemed now to have higher grass sward heights, etc. So we're using it for early spring grazing through the summer and then our sheep go away back onto... So almost the reverse of what Tim's talked about because it's then is left empty during the winter. This is a wonderful moment, Rob, because your wife, Anna, is going to herd the sheep from the water meadow on the far side across the roadway and into where we've just been walking through. Now, are these them here? Just That's just part running? of the flock there. That The remainder are just being moved. So that's her barking instructions to the dog. The, the flock is split into two. One has kept on this side of the water. She's going to go off on the quad to see if she can do better than the dog. <laughs> and the other half of the flock are in yeah, the middle. they're going over a bridge. So that, that, that what's happened is, is some of them went over the bridge and the others came alongside... But it's seeing it. It's this stream of white with, you know, and the black-headed sheep running along through the green grass. It, it's it's beautiful looking. It's as you know would have happened centuries ago. Very much so. Just without the, just the without the quad bike. And, I, and oh, look at they're coming towards us now. That is a gorgeous sight. All right, so the grass is quite tall, so really you only see the backs of the sheep and the, and their their black heads. And it is, it's just like a stream of white through the green. And we've got the cathedral in in the background. (laughs) We'll need to step back a bit or we're going to split the flock again. Right, we'll just go round the back of the flock. Good job, Anna. Yes, you did that really well. It could have gone horribly wrong there and they could have headed up to the cathedral. Oh, yes, well, there, yeah. Hello, dog. That's quite responsive. Good job. Good job. I noticed Rob, he stood about chatting with us in the meadow and left you to get on with the business. Isn't that always the way that the women do the work, not the men? Fantastic, Jan. Yes. Couldn't have programmed that better if I tried. <laughs> it's that instant moment. It's like a flashback to the days gone by when the water meadows were actively farmed by humans, sheep with the grazers. It's good. So Tim Tatton Brown and Rob Hawk are grazier and Jan Fitzjohn, thank you all very much for this wonderful insight into the agricultural history of this landscape which lies below Salisbury Cathedral. Now, 
these water meadows are all about a much bigger water system. So what I'm going to do now is take myself off into the famous chalk streams to find out about how they contributed to the economy of this area across Wiltshire and Hampshire. I've come about 12 miles east of Salisbury and we'll cross over into Hampshire and then we'll come across this lovely sign which says the Wallops. And there is over Wallop and Middle Wallop, but I'm particularly interested in Nether Wallop where I've come to meet Simon Cooper. And Simon, we're standing beside a chalk stream. This is Wallop Brook? This is Wallop Brook, yes. And you are a passionate fly fisherman. You, you organise courses and, and, and fishing breaks for people and you're the author of A Life of a Chalk Stream. So while I've come from the water meadows to this flow of water, they are connected, aren't they? They are indeed. I mean, without a chalk stream, you couldn't have a water meadow because it's the very special qualities of a chalk stream. Water that's pure, always the same sort of temperature all year round and very evenly flowing that makes the water meadow system operate. Why are they called chalk streams? It's probably the best way to understand them is it describes where the water comes from rather than where it goes to. So essentially, we're standing here looking at this crystal clear water. This fell as rain six months ago, 60 or 80 miles north of here, seeped down into the chalk layer beneath the downs, and then following the gradient towards the sea, it gets filtered, purified, cooled, and eventually it will break out near the surface in literally billions and billions and billions of tiny little springs which aggregate into this and so it's, if you think about it think about a sponge okay mm-hmm. if you have a sponge and you get it waterlogged then for every one drop you put in one drop comes out that's how it works that's mm-hmm. how it operates mm-hmm. so getting right down to the edge of the chalk stream that lovely, fast flow, the sparkle from the light, the clear water, strands and strands of green weed attached to the bottom. Ranunculus, that's yeah. what it's called. Yeah. It's beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I mean, what you've just described is picture-perfect chalk stream. You know, bright gravel bottom, gin-clear water, reasonably fast-flowing tumbling over the green ranunculus weed which is actually is the indicator of a really healthy river and if we got in there today and ran our fingers through it and opened up the palms of your hands you'd have little shrimps tiny little nymphs tiny snails and they are the things that fish feed on and so without this ranunculus acting as a home for all these little bugs, the fish wouldn't be here. They wouldn't have anything to eat. Mm. So it's about creating the right habitat so that you have the flies, particularly the mayfly, obviously. Absolutely. You need the base gravel for the fish to spawn on and for the fish to feed upon all the insect life. It's quite a delicate balance. 
It is. So if you denuded it of all the weeds, then you'd have a problem. Likewise, if you denuded the banks of all the foliage, I mean, as we look up here, we've got nettles growing, we've got watercress, we've got little button flowers, mm-hmm. flag iris, hogweed, all different things here. All relishing having their roots in, in that damp environment on the verges of the river. Exactly. And all of those have a different place in the entomology there's different insects that like different plants what's what we've got flitting over the top of the water very dark winged those are damselflies and then we've got tiny little mayflies that are not much bigger than a lentil in size and then the really tiny tiny little ones that you can barely see are just tiny olives and midges and all those are part of this whole ecosystem and food for the fish in the stream absolutely it's beautiful You know, I often think when people want to fish, they're seeking a degree of tranquility. But (laughs) being uh, penetrating that is this throb of a helicopter. Well, we're not far from Middle Wallop, where the army teach their helicopter pilots to fly. So we have them doing this (laughs) every day. You see, we only really get chalk streams in this part of the world, don't we? They're, well, Yeah, I mean, they are unique to England. So the 98% of the world's supply of chalk streams exist in about 12 counties in England. But because they happen to be in these, what are very popular and densely populated counties, there's huge pressures on them. I mean, not just today, but going back for centuries, you know, for industry and people. So we have things like, typically on the Itchen, one of the most famous chalk streams, recently they've had some problems with watercress farms putting pollutants into the water. So that's a problem that's probably only arisen in the past 20 years, and so it's a question of talking to the watercress people and saying, okay, the water you take out to grow your watercress has to go back into the river exactly in exactly the same state that it came out. Just as we've seen how the waters of the chalk stream were used to drown the water meadows or the, the, the river was used to divert down to power water mills, so here too is a lovely example how the waters of the the Wallop Brook had been channelled off to create a fishing lake where people come to be taught by Simon and others. In this particular example, John Stevens is teaching Ed Smith to do a bit of fly fishing and you've had great success already. Ah, the net is still in the water with your catch. Did you catch this, Ed? I did, yeah, about uh, five minutes or so ago. (laughs) After how long being taught how to fly fish? This isn't my first time out on the water, but my fourth time out, but first time with some proper tuition. I've caught a couple before on some still water, never on a river, so that's still uh, still to come, hopefully. I bet you're looking forward to that, getting out in a chalk stream. It'd be great to, to catch a nice wild brown trout on the test, given all the history there is in the literature, but I'd be happy with any fish on any chalk stream <laughs> at the moment. And look at this trout down here, John. Yep. Oh, the, the colouring. Beautiful rainbow. Known as Oncohinchus micus. Speckled with like a fluorescence of pinks and greens in its body. Yep. A lovely bar down the side of colour, which is why they call the rainbow. That lovely colour down the side. Super. Just see, guide him away, go and get out the net. There he goes. And he'll swim out. He'll possibly get out into the faster water out there where the stream comes into the lake. Yeah, a bit more oxygen for him. Yeah, there it goes. And it joins all the other fish in this lake here, which are long, dark shadows, sort of black streaks through the water. 
we, we jokingly say to people that the ones you can see that look very light are the blue trout, the ones that are dark are the rainbows, and the ones you can't see at all are the brown trout, because they're well camouflaged. <laughs> Ed, why do you want to learn to do fly fishing, of all things? I have an office job in the, in the city, the economic research, and it's just a great way to get back to nature and the meditative qualities that that has. I mean, it's not coarse fishing where you just sort of chuck a maggot in and maybe fall asleep with a line tied to your toe. You've got to think about all sorts of things that you just wouldn't think about in the city. Insect life, the weather, the wind, what the fish are feeding on, where they are in the river. So it's a, it's a good way to think about nature in a way that such a degree of complexity that you just never do in the city. Because what you have to think about when you step out into the river a chalk stream as a fisherman... I would jokingly say to people that the fish know you're there the moment you enter the county. <laughs> brown trout, wild brown, wild fish are very, very sensitive. So vibrations on the bank, your shadow, anything you do, you've got to be so, so careful. So we'll see if we can find one that's sitting there relaxed, possibly feeding. Then we'll try and choose the right fly and then see if Ed can pop it in the right place. Get it to land like a butterfly with sore feet. Oh, he's raising his eyes, <laughs> at the thought of that. Well, no, his casting's good. Cutting's very, very nice. So there's no reason why not. We just need some lighter tackle than we're using at the moment. And we'll go and see what we can do. And how long have you been a fly fisherman, John? You don't want to know. Hmm. 50 years. Hmm. I've caught enough fish in the past. I don't need to catch fish now. It's just go out there and watch nature. Sit here sometimes, watch kingfishers go by. I don't know if you've seen one today. No, I haven't. No, well, Damsel flies with that damsels, electric blue. While we've been talking, there's been fly catchers. There's a yellow wagtail was over there. There's been a tree creeper in the middle. It's all the time you're looking around, just watching things. The waters of the chalk streams were managed for agriculture, but as that fell into misuse, so the use of the waters through Victorian times, their purpose and their contribution to the economy changed. Sometimes, sort of mid-1800s, as the Grand Victorians had more time, fly fishing and fishing in general became a pastime. And the chalk streams became the home of fly fishing. There was a particular gentleman called Frederick Halford, who effectively is the man who can be said to have invented fly fishing. He fished round here on the River Test. And it became a huge sport. And suddenly these rivers that for you know, hundreds of years have been used for agriculture, for milling and all those sorts of things, and the water meadows, they suddenly stopped being useful for that purpose. And these wealthy landowners got into fly fishing, employed river keepers, started stocking the river and started managing them strictly for fishing. And that has continued right through to today. There would have been gravel extraction, of course, because that was a precious resource, water extraction as well, all created to the degradation of the chalk streams. Really, for all those things, they survived pretty well, mostly because they're privately owned, all rivers in England and Wales are privately owned. The owners are very passionate about preserving them and so they've always been very keen on pressing down on government bodies to make sure nothing bad happens. And But it's always a struggle. There's always something happening out there that's not good for rivers. But overall, 
it's not right to paint a doom and gloom picture. Chalk streams are actually in better shape than they probably were 50 years ago. Yeah, but you've had to get in there, get your hands wet to help restore stretches of chalk stream. It's not rebuilding, it's restoring. You're taking something that's there that you just have to release the potential of. It, it's not rocket science. All we're doing is we're opening it up, making it, letting in more light, removing obstructions, all those sorts of things, quite simple stuff doesn't require big machinery or anything like that. Just standing and admiring the flow of water, we've got a lovely sense of how those crystal streams which gathered mm-hmm. ha- are now flowing past us, how they've been used by man for leisure and, well, and industry, then find their ways onto the water meadows at a time of revolutionary uh, agricultural activity. And then from there, once used by man again, back into the main streams make their way down into the Solent. This constant cycle from below the geology of the chalk through our chalkland landscape into the sea. Used by man, sometimes abused, but a very precious part of this landscape in the south of England, aren't they? They are, and they are quintessentially English. You could travel the globe and you'd never see it's like anywhere else.